Hello everyone, this is the Indian Diaspora Podcast, back with episode 19. I'm your host Shashi with my co-host Vijay and Vishwas, and we're expecting Neeraj to join us as well. Uh, we have a very special episode today with uh, a guest, uh, a special guest, who was one of our classmates when we were in engineering college in India. Uh, Mazhar ul-Islam is from Bangladesh, and he was uh, actually a very unusual classmate for us because IIT being IIT, we have, most of the students were Indian. Uh, but Mazhar has an amazing life story. He's a very accomplished person. Uh, he's a now a distinguished professor um, and is the author of a book. Uh, also got extensive teaching experience. Um, and so we are very glad and very honored to have Mazhar on our show. Welcome to the show, Mazhar. Hey, Shashi. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Looking forward to it. It's a real delight for us, Mazhar. Um, you know, you and all of us have been friends for a very long time. But we've always been conscious that uh, there was something very special about you, and that's why we've got you here on the show. Mother, um, let's start with you know, a bit of a biography of you. Um, you, know, you arrived very much like us in IIT Kharagpur in 1989, but you arrived there with a very different life story. Uh, tell us a bit about your life in Bangladesh before that, Mother. All right, thank you. Yeah, so I came to Kharagpur, as you said, in 89. Before that, I was mostly... Uh, in Chattogram, what we call Chattogram, we used to call Chittagong. I was born there uh, right before the war of 1971, and my life story is one of the m- most important events of my life happened when I was really young. Uh, my mother was killed in a genocide in 1971 war, and I grew up in a family of five, my dad, uh, two of my brothers, and my sister in Chattogram, and uh, my father uh, raised us as a single father. Uh, That means he never got married, and we were raised by him, although my sister and my brothers were involved in raising me, mostly my sister, who is eight years older than me. So life was simple in Chittagong. My dad has a, uh, had a railway job, Bangladesh Railway. He was a chemist, and later on he became a, like a director of the lab. But it was a uh, you know uh, middle class Bangladeshi family in a uh, suburb of uh, city of Chittagong, a railway kind of colony. You can say a bit better than colony. Uh, we had a, a bit better accommodation. Uh, I was there till. Grade seven, I was mostly uh, many times of the day, I, many times of the week, I would be maybe alone in home. So I had lots of freedom. Uh, I would go to mountains, there was a lake. Sometimes I would go to the beach, ocean front, ocean, because that was not very far. And then one my, when I was in seventh grade, like two of my older brothers, I went to a school called Fosdarhat Cadet College. Um, which is a boarding school, army boarding school, and supposed to be the best school at that time in Bangladesh. And we used to have like top students from all over the country. And it was a boarding school, six years, uh, highly regimented life, you can imagine. Uh, but we had access to uh, wonderful facilities, swimming pool, you know, soccer, football ground, basketball grounds, boxing. We used to have things on the stage, like all sorts of competition, debate, you know, storytelling. Um, We'd have uh, all sorts of sports events. We played hockey in Bangladesh at that time. We used to have baseball even for a short period of time. 
So I was exposed to all different sorts of sports as well as all sorts of cultural activities, drama, music, you name it. So that had a profound impact on my life as I grew up, especially when it comes to, as you said, I'm a professor, uh, when I'm speaking in front of a large group of students or a group of people, uh, I am not, I'm, I'm trained to do that or I'm used to do that from very early childhood. And also created sort of bondage among my friends because we were 50 of them uh, in one batch and it was, it, it has two aspects of it. We, we, we bonded a lot because we were in this uh, boarding school 265 days a year, 100 days we'll have holidays. And, you know, it has its own culture, it's, it had its own, uh, own life in a sense that um, in, if I look back, many things I uh, achieved in my life or many things I do uh, has a reflection of what I did in early six years of my life. Uh, then it was uh, one of our seniors, my seniors from that, we call it college, uh, first Jarhat Cadet College, in short, FCC. He came to IIT. And that time, IIT, Indian Institute of Technology, we did not know much. We did not have internet. But we heard that if you go to IIT, you get a great job. It's a great school. And so I went from, after my high school, I, I would go to Indian Embassy in Dhaka. Uh, also, Indian, um, Indian, there was an Indian consulate in Chattogram, and they would have like some books and some directories and I went and asked about IIT and they would give me like a book and they have all sorts of addresses. And then after high school, there was something interesting there. So we knew that you have to have 80% marks in English to be able to apply to IITs. Uh, but I think in our year, they reduced to 70% because very, very few people would get 80% in English in high school, like HSC, what we call higher secondary school. Um, so I was able to apply. So I had to you know, send an application form, send like $10. So I ended up able to apply. Uh, and that's how I was lucky. I'm absolutely lucky to be able to get into IIT without a JEE. That was not required for foreign students. They would consider only your high school scores and things that nature. Because I am saying lucky, I will stop because I'm making it too long than I thought. Uh, so I had a friend who had almost identical score as me, except he had one point less in physics or chemistry. If they would consider physics, chemistry, math, and of course you have to have an English score at certain level. So he was one point less than me and he also applied, but he didn't get in. So unless he had some issues with his paperwork, I think I was the probably last person they admitted from Bangladesh that year. And we would, they would hire, they would admit only one or two for each IIT. So I was one of the two from Bangladesh in IIT Kharagpur in our batch. So that's how I ended up in IIT Kharagpur. Well, I mean, so, you know, fate has many twists and turns, but, uh, you know, it was great that you were able to come and that we were able to get acquainted with you. I mean, Masar, you know, I don't want to gloss over, you know, things that you said about your childhood because they bear such a deep meaning to what happened later on. I mean, the events of 1971 
were traumatic in many different ways. And, you know, you and all of us have talked about that for many, many years. When you said it was your mother who was killed, it wasn't just that. I mean, it was quite, uh, quite an event, wasn't it? Do you want to just spend a couple of minutes and tell our listeners, you know, just what happened back then? All right. So, um, 1971, I, I guess most of our listeners are aware of uh, the independence war of Bangladesh. And at that time, my family, my dad, my mom, and four of us, so in my eldest brother is 10 years older than me, my sister is like eight years older than me, and my immediate older brother, uh, he is five years older than me. We all used to live in Chattogram or Chittagong. Uh, back in uh, early part of the independence war, or war of independence, uh, the th- situation in Chittagong became a bit uh, challenging. There were riots and there were both sides, uh, um, there were a lot of violence. So my dad decided to escape from Chattogram to our ancestors' village in Faridpur which is, you know, middle of Bangladesh, a bit south, uh, west of the capital, Dhaka. So our ancestors, my father's side of the family, they are from Faridpur, which is a small village, actually, from Faridpur, city of Faridpur, town of Faridpur. So a long story short, it took us a few days to go through the country because of that lack of transportation, like because of the war and violence. So we escaped there and... At some point, my dad went, left us in the village. So you have to remember, a couple of things are important here. Uh, My mom, so it was my great-grandfather who left the village village for profession. So my great-grandfather was working in Calcutta, Kolkata, as a, you know, uh, in the uh, in the postal department, maybe assistant postmaster in some Calcutta uh, post office, said my great-grandfather. So my grandfather is to work for railway. My dad is to work for railway. So our family, in fact, left the village, you can say, really long time ago. So my mom, that was for her first time visiting that village. So my dad, so the, well, in the middle of the kind of, this 1971, I think it could be early May or late April of 1971, my dad had decided to leave us in the village, go to Dhaka, because the government that time that time declared that people who are working for government organizations, they could go and withdraw their salary. So he left us, and at that time, there were some events, I don't want to go too into details, there were people from the village, they were helping Pakistani army in the war, and there was a battle, in that battle some Pakistani army died, uh, soldiers died, and that made Pakistani army and their local collaborators angry about the young you know, freedom fighters of our area of the Faridpur. So basically there was a, a, a deliberate attack on the villages uh, to take a revenge of the earlier battle that um, that ended in loss of three 
Pakistani soldiers, I think. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm saying thinking because there were also other people from Bangladesh side died as well. So that's what, what happened in, within a span of two, three days. Uh, Pakistani army, along with their um, local collaborators, they have massacred, or you can say genocide, in three, four villages during that time. And our village here, the incident that my mom died uh, was uh, 16 people, 10 women and children, and six other men. And the particular event, I was only one year, few months, and the particular event that led to my mother's uh, uh, death was, uh, a, you can say, they basically uh, killed uh, few women and children together. I was in my mom's lap and somehow survived. We still do not know how it happened. She managed to maybe drop me on the ground. Uh, my brothers and my sister, they were separated by uh, the army and they were taken away somewhere else. So this is the like short form of the story. There are many parts of it yeah, that yeah, I'm not yeah, going yeah, into detail. Yeah, yeah. So it's worth reminding, I think Mazar, it's worth reminding our listeners, you know, that this was quite an extended period of uh, what I think is rightly termed genocide now. Uh, it started in about March. So this was, the incident that you're narrating is about a month into it. But the trauma went on for many months after that until the liberation of Bangladesh on the 16th of December, right. 1971. But right. Mother, so, you know, this is obviously, I mean, it's very hard for anyone who's not been through it to imagine just how traumatic this incident was. But in your case, the trauma didn't end there. I mean, the, it went on with you having to confront people who were responsible for this genocide much later in life as well, um, including when you went to get your passport. Right, right, right. That was interesting. And I remember, you know, uh, quite some time ago, you shared uh, how the person who had to certify your passport was the same person responsible for some of the incidents that led to your mother's death. Yeah, so that's kind of what you see in movies or you see in a, like a book, right? So many, 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 many years went by. And you know, in Bangladesh, like I guess in India, you have something called character. Uh, characteristic certificate, like you have to get a piece of paper from the community or Thana or uh, I think it's, it's, it's some sort of like uh, Thana or po uh, union, that's the term they use, union, right? So union parishad, like there's a, like a, in West, uh, like county in the US will call county in Europe, some places they call commune. So, uh, when I applied for my passport first time for going to India, in fact, I had a passport before I went to IIT Kharagpur because my dad wanted us to travel to India. Uh, maybe I'll share some story then. Uh, so we, I had a passport and then, you know, every time you renew passport, you need some piece of paper from that union, Parishad or, you know, the local government. So my, did, my, my dad was uh, like, he did, he he got my passport. I didn't apply myself or whatever. Many years later, I my dad gave me some, you know, he's still alive. My dad is turning 90 actually in March. So he, like maybe 15, 17 years ago, he gave me a bunch of paper. He said, you know, these are the papers that are important for you. Uh, you should keep it. Uh, these are some, you know, land property related papers and 
some other document. So one of the piece of paper was there. I I, I didn't pay attention to right. I I paid. I know it was a character certificate, but back in 2012, uh, 2012, 13 around that time, Bangladesh opened this international crime tribunal, and they started prosecuting people who were involved during the 1971 war, as you know, Rajakar, Al Badr. So they were the collaborators of Pakistani army during that time. And it happens that the person who was primarily, primarily responsible uh, in terms of conducting the genocide in our village, along with some other people, he was one of the person that came into the you know, limelight and he, he was going through the trial. In fact, he left Bangladesh. He is now uh, living in Sweden, as my knowledge goes. I, I think he's still alive. Uh, there's, I didn't read that he is dead. So that person, uh, so there, 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 were, there was this trial going on in all the newspaper, articles started coming and, you know. So that guy's name is uh, Kokon, right? Jahidul uh, Hamad Kokon. And so it's going on. And like one day, I mean, I think I was in uh, Philadelphia and I was going through the paper and I said, wow. How come his name in this piece of paper where he certified me as a character, a person with good morals, right? And then I talked to my dad, like, is this the same guy, like, who is going through a trial because he conducted genocide and I, uh, my, my family is part of that victim? And my dad said, yes, he was actually after the 1971 war. Um, you know, he was hiding for many years and then he came out and joined a political party, which is the opposition political party in Bangladesh right now. And, you know, he was the one elected official. So long story short, the person who was directly involved in conducting the genocide that resulted in my mom's death was the same person after maybe 30 or some years writing a uh, sort of moral certificate uh, for me. So that's the I mean, story. I mean, you know, this this is I mean, this does sound like very much like a the, the script of a movie rather than real life. But you know, with you, right. it is a real life experience. But you know, moving on. So you arrived in IIT Kharagpur and you were part of the mining department. Uh, and I just want to bring in uh, Neeraj here because he Neeraj and you Mazar were part of the same department, so you spent a lot of time together. Neeraj, if I could bring you in here. Yeah, so for Mazhar, my first memory was that, first of all, I didn't even know that IITs had people from outside India. So finding out a fellow miner who's from Bangladesh itself was like kind of shocked. And my question was, why would he come to do mining? <laughs> so, but one thing was, we had so many field trips that the relationship we built over there kind of stayed for almost now 35 years, right? So when Mazhar went to AIT, I'm sure Mazhar will talk about it. I stayed in touch with him indirectly through another, uh, you know, batchmate that was there. So, and then coming to US, I kind of lost contact with him, but I bumped into him in Philadelphia. So since then, I think Mazhar and I have pretty much, we have met every year since then, Mazhar, right? So mother is the glue for our batch. We'll talk more about it, but I've always been fond of mother. 
from the time I met him. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, Neeraj, that that uh, that was very nice of you, Neeraj. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But the only difference has, to, I think, I have to interfere here. The only difference between me and Neeraj in the mining department was he was the topper, like he was the, one of the he was the top student, and I'm one of the like a bottomer. So uh, that would should be um, you know one thing noted here. Yeah, but Mazhar, I think <laughs> no one has ever had a bad word to say about you, and that says something about <laughs> you and your character. Uh, look, four years of IIT Kharagpur, I think we've all had a very similar journey. Uh, you left IIT and went off in a very different direction from many other people. Uh, you went back to Bangladesh and then ended up in Thailand. Tell us a bit about that, Mazhar. Yeah, so uh, maybe maybe I could take one minute or two minutes to talk about Kharagpur because I don't want to skip through my an important part of, of my life. Yeah. Right? So Kharagpur was, you know, I'm a young guy, came from Bangladesh, ended up uh, in this amazing place. And uh, my life in Bangladesh in that boarding school was much more regimented. Then I had a, like a one year or so, like a freedom. But Kharagpur, I came and I have like a really freedom, right? And it was also, as you know, we are speaking to each other now 30 plus years later. It was a time we bonded and I had some of the, my closest, closest friends, right, including some of you are here, uh, from during my Kharagpur time. It was a great time. And one thing you will see the, in my life in future, I travel a lot. I love traveling and I met my wife and I, we both uh, love to travel. But my love for traveling started in my Kharagpur time. So I would go to, uh, during the breaks when some people would go back to home, I would travel in, you know, Urissa, Bihar, Bengal. So I have been to so many places. So most of the time, my, myself alone during the break. So I started traveling myself a lot during my Kharagpur time, including my mining trips and um, our, our industrial training trips. Uh, so it was a great time. Um, I, we were in Kharagpur. Um, and also during my Kharagpur time, my dad came to visit me twice. And one time we did North, North India tour, Agra, Jaipur, Ajmer, New Delhi kind of trips. Once we did one month in South India, right after we graduate, right? So my dad and I did go to Madras, Bangalore, Mysore, Uti, Kodai Canal, you know, Peria National Park, Trivandrum, Karnakumari. So that was like one month. So during my Kharagpur time, yes, I studied, I bonded with my friends, but I traveled a lot in India, uh, especially Bengal, Bihar, Uissa area and of South and many other places. So that had a profound impact on my life. Being traveling alone or traveling with somebody uh, gave me much more insights. Now let's come back to after my Kharagpur days. So after Kharagpur, I returned to Bangladesh and I was working for a mining company or it's a state-run enterprise for a couple of years as a mining engineer at a coal mine uh, project. But it was in a remote part, I mean, uh, in Dinajpur area. My first job, really low paid. And it was an interesting job. I was working with a group of Chinese engineers and a consulting firm from England. But I never saw myself being in that kind of organization ever. So at that time, many of our friends started, you know, many of you uh, started doing an MBA. So I thought to do an MBA and um, 
I got to know about AIT Bangkok, Asian Institute of Technology in Thailand while I was in actually in Kharagpur because there was this Bangladeshi uh, PhD student. He, before he came to IIT Kharagpur, he did his master's in computer science from this place called AIT, which I didn't know about. So I, from him, I heard about this wonderful institution right outside Bangkok. Uh, they provide scholarship. So I applied and I got a scholarship to go to study MBA for free. And that was uh, uh, that was a wonderful uh, opportunity. So Thailand was an amazing place at that time um, because of a few reasons. So I, I went to Thailand in 1995. That was towards the end of Thailand's boom. So Thailand's economy was growing at a really high rate previous uh, during the previous say 20 years or so 15 20 years and it was a place happening place uh, so i did my mba uh, I, as a part of the mba program i went to do some research work for my master's thesis to england and france i went to also india for a brief period of time Bangkok was a wonderful time after I finished. So in AIT again, I was involved heavily with the student organization and I was elected as the student union president. Uh, and it was a great time. I used to play cricket in AIT. I used to play cricket in India, but India, I would not. I used to play for my hall, but once in a while I get into playing games. Most of the time I'll be like a, an extra player. But when I went to AIT, the quality of the people who would be playing cricket was not so good. So I would be playing for AIT cricket team. So we would play in Bangkok Cricket League. And our team was great because we had people from Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan. And I was the only one from Bangladesh. So it was a great time. And then after I finished my work, but an important thing happened in my life while I was in AIT. I met my future wife. Uh, she came from... Uh, Norway. She's an Icelandic, uh, like she's Icelandic, but she came from Norway uh, as an exchange student to spend a semester in AIT and we met there and then we, you know, that's how my whole life changed and I, you know, we have been married for now uh, almost 24 years. Next week will be 24 years. So that's another event. And then after I graduated, I spent time in Bangkok and I used to work for a large um, family business conglomerate and we continue to travel. My wife and I travel to uh, South Thailand many times and also my wife and I, uh, before our marriage, we had uh, a trip to India. Uh, so, but the amazing thing was in Thailand, that was a, you know, a, an amazing culture. I, first time I met a culture which is outside South South Asian culture. So it was a great time in Thailand. Hey, Mazar, I wanted to ask you exactly that question. You know, so living in Bangladesh, would you see India and Thailand as being equidistant? Or do you think that there is sort of more shared history and culture with India than with, Bang than with Thailand? Interesting question. So India is a diverse country. Uh, so when I ended up in Kharagpur, the Bengali culture. So I, you know, I as I, as I grew up, we all or 
I read lots of Bengali literature, so many of these writers, you, all the stories, novels, fictions you read, they are in the context of Bengal, right? So sometimes it's Bangladesh, sometimes in West Bengal. Uh, uh, so, so when I went to India at Kharagpur, and many of my friends are actually Bengali, the language was not a barrier. And we had many things in common, although, as you know, Bangladesh is a predominantly a Muslim country, but our culture, our literature is so much like Bengali culture, Bengali yeah. literature. So, you, you know, I mean, just to interrupt you there, Mazhar, I mean, this has been the bane of, uh, I, I mean, I'm just taking a sort of slight detour into history. You know, the first partition of Bengal in 1905 and then the second partition in 1911 and all that. This was one of the core issues, you know, that there was more shared between what is now Bangladesh and what is now West Bengal. Um, and the first partition in 1905 led to a huge amount of opposition from the Indians about how you could divide up a state that had so much shared culture. And I suspect, you know, that's an echo of what you're just talking about right now. Yes, it's amazing. I, I, I'll just tell you because one thing I missed out, but I just want to go back a bit. So many of my friends from my Kharagpur days were Bengali, right? Bengalis from, uh, you know, they are from Durgapur, Calcutta, they are from Asansol, they are from Rachi, Jamshedpur, right? And I visited most of these, my friends' homes because, you know, I would go for a training in the Jadugor Uranium Mine near Jamshedpur. I have a friend in Jamshedpur. I or I went to Ramgarh, which is near Rachi. I would spend a night with my friend Rahul Basu's family. But what I found was fascinating, these parents of my friends from IIT Kharagpur, either they are from West Bengal or some of them are like, they move during the partition. They had so much interest about Bangladesh, right? And I was like, wow, right? So they would be like really interested to know about Bangladesh, right? know about Faridpur, know about Chattogram, know about Kumilla. So I had so many great conversations with these uncles and hearts of, of my, you know, my friends' uh, parents. So, and I found it fascinating at young age going to places like, you know, uh, Asamso, Durgapur, uh, you know, um, you know, places like, you know, Rachi, Ram, um, places like uh, Bakura, right? Bakura, Chargram. Uh, Many places there are Bengalis and talking to Bengalis or Beng like you see so much connection from reading from Rabindranath Tagore to reading from Sunil Gangopadhyay. And I was involved in some of this cultural aspect in Kharagpur. So yeah. when I just want to take one minute uh, about Thailand, Thailand was a very different culture because it's embedded in Buddhism, right? It was very different culture. And I, there are many Thai words are uh, rooted in Sanskrit. But, you know, it's a very different culture in Thailand, very welcoming uh, culture. Now that, so, you know, Mazar, I'm from Rachi. The places that you're talking about are very close to where I've lived. And I have never come across a Bengali who doesn't have some roots or some affinity for things in what used to be East Bengal and now is Bangladesh. So, you know, I can completely echo the stories that you're telling. But Mazar, let's carry on with the story. So Bangladesh, and then you were in Germany for a while, and then you arrived in the U.S. Tell us, move the story forward about how you ended up in the U.S. Oh, so, yeah, so after I met my wife, Ina, which is a short name of uh, Ingeborg, which is an Icelandic name, so we 
used to live in Thailand briefly and then we decided to marry in Bangladesh. We got married in Bangladesh back in 
especially in the area I mean, uh, management area. Um, seems like US has more options or uh, better options. So I went to University of Minnesota and the reason we chose University of Minnesota, I had other places I could have gone. But University of Minnesota also has a wonderful master's program in GIS, Geographic Information Science, that my wife could do. She has a master's from Norway, had a master's from Norway at that time, but she decided to do a second master's. So we ended up in Minnesota and spent six years in Minnesota. And, uh, it was a wonderful experience living in Midwest um, in, a, in a graduate housing. Uh, it was uh, a great time for our children, in fact. They, they really look back <clears throat> and they said that was a wonderful time. So, Masad, you've been teaching now for a long time, uh, you know, and you are also the author of a very interesting book on population and demographics and all that. Uh, you travel extensively and you've taught in many countries. So, you know, I think if there was anybody who could reflect back on the experience of being in the diaspora and living abroad, um, I, I don't think you could find somebody better than you. What's been your reflection of, you know, different cultures, uh, getting adapting to them, learning about new cultures and all that, you know, how does that shape your own view about the world and about your childhood in Bangladesh and everything else? So it's a great question. I mean, I'm sure there are people who has more uh, intensive experience. Uh, I think the culture I was exposed to India was very similar to Bangladesh, as I said, although there are many aspects of the culture, I see the difference. And the Thai culture, Thailand culture was, uh, again, it's a Buddhism, based on Buddhism and very easygoing culture. Uh, Germany was, you know, as we know, as we have stereotyped thinking about Germany. It's a very different culture, uh, very uh, structured, disciplined. Everything is in place like a structured way. I should say, Mazhar, and... that Vishwas has also lived in Germany. <laughs> because uh, does that echo with your uh, kind of experience of Germany, very structured and this stereotype about Germany being true? <laughs> yeah, and Mazhar, I was living near Heidelberg to I was there around 2006. So I, I, I don't know, you didn't mention the year you were there. So we probably missed each other uh, around that time. And uh, I was working in uh, Ludwig Schaffen with BSF. Okay. And uh, and I was driving from Heidelberg, so I was commuting from Heidelberg to Ludwigshafen. And uh, yes, on the German question, uh, yes. Yeah, so for, for example, uh, you know, talking about a, a cultural thing, one one thing that comes to my mind. For example, I I asked uh, one of my colleagues that you know how do I get from point A to point B. Uh, in in the BSF office, and uh, he brought me a printout on uh, you know the different routes you can take, and then he got me another printout on what would be the most cost-effective way of getting there for the different routes. I mean, the, you know, some permutations and combinations on on how the costing could be done, and then uh, another one for some of the alternative schedules for you know, for the different uh, times of the week. So I, 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 so that's, that's, you know, the level of detail 
that uh, talk about getting that a, they get into. Talk about getting a comprehensive answer to a very simple question. <laughs> yep, you, you as an Indian, you would answer that very differently, right? Yeah, you know, turn left at the banyan tree. Basar, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. back to you. Tell us about your experience. Yeah, so no, so so German culture again. It was a short period of time, and as you know, Germany had a different culture in the north than south, and uh, we used to live in a kind of international, small, private university. So we had students from many other European countries, and some Indian, some Pakistani students. So we had a kind of small, multicultural environment, and I never learned German. My wife went to some schools, some classes, but we we did not embed in a way that uh, maybe somebody could do if they live in a longer period of time. And, you know, U.S. itself has different culture, like Minnesota has a different culture, Midwest culture, East Coast have a different culture. And then we lived in, our, in New Orleans in the South for now, I think, seven to eight years. South or New Orleans for that matter, has a very different culture that is from Northeast or Midwest in the U.S. We never lived in West Coast, but I can compare the Minnesota culture, uh, Philadelphia East Coast culture, and South culture is significantly different in many ways. So my take on this culture living abroad is that my wife and I, we are always open to the ideas of picking up things from different culture that we like. And I also have this belief that not everything in my culture is good. It's not that I'm from Bengali culture or Bangladeshi culture. Everything of my culture is good. There are things in my culture, my country, that is not appropriate, not good. So we avoid that or we don't. And we pick up things like, so if you are married to somebody who is from very, very different culture. In fact, Ina and I, my wife and I, do not know a second couple that are from Bangladesh and Iceland. So, um, and, you know, we raised two kids. They're my sons, they go to college. And Mother, to college. just to interrupt you there, you know, finding a Bangladesh versus, well, finding any couple with Icelandics is not easy. It's a country of 300,000 people. Sure. But, you know, one of the interesting <laughs> things is that the entire Iceland is probably smaller than the 20th largest town in Bangladesh. <laughs> right, of course, yeah. It's a very you know, wonderful country. I mean, we have been several times, but the Icelandic culture, so my wife was born in Iceland um, and they, when she was like about eight, nine years old, their family moved to Norway. Uh, however, her culture is also very uh, much more diverse than, say, my culture growing up in Bangladesh, although I lived in multiple countries, because both of her grandpa- grandmothers are from Faroe Island. So we have been to Faroe Island once, and you know, Faroe Island is like 50,000 people live there in a small island. So our both grandmothers are from Faroe Islands. Our dad is from uh, Iceland. Her mom has half Norwegian, half Icelandic. Half, her mom is basically half Norwegian, half Faroe Island. So they're also a mix of Nordic and, you know, Icelandic Nordic mix. So she comes from a background from Iceland as well as she grew up in Trondheim, which is in Norway. So she comes from kind of a bit uh, uh, more multiple, multicultural than say just coming out from Iceland or Norway. So as a family, we picked up things from Bangladesh culture 
Icelandic culture, right? So we are a mix of many things that we do, and we picked up many, many things because kids grew up here in the U.S., so it's uh, U.S. culture, you can say. So, so you know, Mazad, talk a little bit more about that. You know, I mean, living in a, a, a family with, where the parents are from different cultures, uh, of course, requires you to learn about new things um, in a way that, frankly, you would not have come across otherwise. How has that impacted upon your children and how do they see uh, their heritage as being? An interesting question, right? So my kids are Icelandic citizens and they still believe they're Icelandic and Bangladeshi. They are proud of it. Uh, you know, our family chat has a Bangladesh flag and Iceland flag. They have been to Bangladesh several times. Uh, not as many as we would like to. There were situations we could not afford to go or there were situations in Bangladesh. Uh, but they are... Uh, they are, they although they grew up most of their life they were both they were born in norway uh, but because they grew up here mostly in the us they are you know they're more like american kids or kids from here but they still they speak norwegian to some extent because my wife speaks norwegian to them they used to speak bangla when they were young but it is absolutely my fault that i didn't follow up i was in the phd program so they are American in sense is American, but they also really proud of their both Bangladeshi culture and 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 their uh, Icelandic uh, roots. And so, Masad, you know, just in terms of uh, preserving, you know, the culture for the children, you also travel to you know many places in Central America, and you come across many indigenous cultures. In fact, we love the updates that you gave on. Uh, your experiences in Central America. What's your perspective on how hard parents should try to maintain the culture of their ancestors, especially when the children are having to deal with two very different cultures between you and your wife, and they're living in a very third country where there's a whole different culture. How much do you think it's really incumbent upon parents to give them that culture? And how much do you think children can really imbibe of it? That's a hard question. You know, I... I I cannot give you like a prescriptive answer. The reason that uh, my wife, uh, even if she's from Iceland, Norway, she traveled to 40 plus countries. She When she met me, she probably has been to like 30 plus countries, plus experience of living in places like Thailand. She spent few time in uh, Nepal. Uh, we have been to India together a couple of times for extended period of time, travel around India. So. She, even if she's from Norway, Iceland, she has, I'd say like, she's more Asian. I sometimes joke, like my wife is more Asian than many Asians I know from Bangladesh and India because of her openness to different culture. On the other side, me, although I'm from Bangladesh, as you know, living in India, changed my, the way I am, living in Thailand, living in Germany. So we became like much more uh, multicultural, open to culture. So when... I can only tell how we raise our kids. I do not know if that's the perfect way of raising or that's the right way. But they were mixing with people when they were in high school, they were in middle school, they would mix with kids with very different countries. Because in Minnesota, when we used to live in a uh, family housing, uh, they would hang out with many, many different countries people. Now, for me, 
as a, an immigrant in from Bangladesh, in many places, immigrants from Bangladesh, they would be always really close um, ties, right? So they will meet in the weekends and things that nature. Because we are a, like a mixed couple, we didn't do that much of that. So when Minnesota, I had one friend, so we were not like yeah. stick to the culture. So I was open to the idea of mixing with, uh, we were open to, you know, I think that's a that's a very important point, Mazhar. You know, when both parents are from the same culture and that culture has a strong, you know, like for example, there's a North African uh, group of uh, North American group of Bengalis, and they sort of mix together. You know, if the parents are both Bengalis, then there's a very strong association there. But the moment the parents are from two different cultures, it makes things very different. Vijay, can I just ask you? You know, your children, of course, of Indian heritage, but they've grown up in the U.S. You took them back to India. Uh, and you lived there for three years. Uh, how much of, what, what was their experience like? You know, we talk about our experiences a lot, but what was their experience? So, firstly, uh, great to hear about your experiences, Mother. I think you've traveled way more than uh, we have, at least from a living in different places perspective. Uh, as she points out, we uh, traveled for three years uh, when my company sent me to India for work. Uh, we, you know, all, all the whole family went there and we were in Bangalore for three years. I think it was... Uh, very good experience. The fact that we went back to where I grew up, so going to India rather than you know going to China or something, it was uh, it was interesting for the kids because the previous experiences of traveling to India were always you know very short, couple of weeks, go meet people quickly and get out. This time around, they got to spend three years. Uh, we really got to meet a lot of relatives. They got to see what life is like in India, albeit in many cases we were living in a bubble, but uh, that immersion really got them a sense of, okay, now when my parents talk about their childhood experiences or where they came from, they had a, they could visualize it. They had a much better appreciation. And after we came back, they understand, I guess they understand us much better. And that's sort of something that, uh, you know, one of the things that Shashi brought up about the kids, one of the things that we've talked about a lot in this podcast in the past episodes is around the idea of, uh, what feels like home, right? Because uh, the diaspora experience is really, it's very iterative, right? You kind of, uh, the one thing that characterizes maybe all of us on this call is that we were willing to step away from from where we had grown up and felt very comfortable and go try something in a new place without a really clear idea of what would happen and how things would work out. And you've kind of done it again and again. And when you do that, uh, you know, the geographical and cultural lines can start getting blurred and you've traveled extensively you've lived in many parts of the world you married ina who's from iceland you're raising kids in the us but you know they're icelandic citizens so you know tell me a little bit about how you feel now as a person today like for you what feels like home because it's kind of like you know where do you feel the most comfortable where do you think you know when you think about hey where would i want to retire and you know I spend, you know, the later years of my life, what, what, after all this travel and, uh, you know, all these experiences, what feels like home to you? That's an interesting question. So for me, home is Bangladesh. By far, Bangladesh cannot replace any, I mean, I can't replace Bangladesh with any other country as a home. That's me, right? But in a practical aspect, calling Bangladesh home became challenging. Kids grew up here. My wife is from Iceland. I feel really, uh, my, I always tell people, which is funny, I lived in India for only four years and travel maybe another you know, few months. 
but I call India my second home. And then they say, why do you call India the second home? Because you lived in the U.S. for 20 years. So I have a good answer. I said that, you know, uh, home is where, where, where your friends are, right? So even if I lived in the U.S., as you know, professionally, when you live in a country as a more like profession or a graduate student, yes, I have many, many or some really good friends who are from the United States or people who are from a third country like Mexico or maybe from China or Turkey. They are very good friend of mine because we lived in the U.S. But my two groups of our friends are from Bangladesh and India because of these four years we spend in this wonderful campus. So I have so many friends from India. That's why I call India my second home, right? So, uh, uh, yeah, that's how I yes. feel. But in fact, you know, I am a, not a U.S. citizen, just to correct that. I'm still a Bangladeshi citizen. I Even if I had the opportunity to take the citizenship, I still carry my Bangladeshi passport because I somehow still do not think I'm an American myself in my mind. Uh, I'm still... Not from here, I feel. Although I lived here for 20 years and I love this country. Well, Mazhar, uh, like you, I still carry my Indian passport. Um, and it's so wonderful to hear you say that you regard India as your second home. I mean, it's not for us to accord you any status there at all. But it's absolutely delightful to hear that you have that sort of affinity with India gained through the four years at IIT. But can I just ask you a supplement to Vijay's question, which is, so you regard Bangladesh as home. What would your children regard as home? So that's a difficult question. I think for more practical purpose, they will think United States, but they are also feel proud. Like when we went to Bangladesh, uh, I wish we could go more often. We did not do that because of many circumstances when they are children, uh, mostly money issues, mostly political situation in Bangladesh. You know, sometimes it was not ideal. Uh, but I think they feel more about being American here, but they're not American. They feel more like Scandinavian and to some extent Bangladeshi. So uh, I would not be surprised if one or both of my children, uh, our children, they might end up living in a third country. I mean, yeah. Emil was in South Africa, older one for six weeks. He loved and he keeps talking about, oh, if he gets an opportunity, he would go to South Africa to work after he graduates. My younger one, our younger one, Marvin, he is going to Croatia uh, beginning of uh, in like maybe four weeks for a semester. So I think they're also open to the ideas to be living abroad or traveling abroad. I've been to 40 plus countries. My wife has been to a similar 40 plus countries. Uh, my kids, they have been to like 15 or some countries. So they are also open to the ideas of not necessarily rooting in a, uh, putting their roots in one country. That's what my thinking, who knows, yeah. you know, they're young. Well, it, no, it's interesting because um, when Vijay has talked in the past about when he lived in India, he had started thinking of the U.S. as home and, you know, the idea was to get back home. But you're adding a very different perspective that you can be unrooted and that's not unsettling, uh, that, you know, you regard the world as your home and that you are mobile within that, that wider world. If I hear you, if that's what I hear you saying. Yeah, so I will interrupt a bit because you asked about retirement. I mean, I am always looking with my wife to some time uh, to buy something. If I had like, you know, I hope I will buy one day some place like Panama 
or Costa Rica, even it could be Guatemala. So these are the places I have been many times. And I was lucky to teach in some of these countries uh, as when I was at Tulane, I, you know, I, I taught in many of these countries like Colombia, Chile, uh, Peru, Guatemala and Panama. So um, I speak some Spanish, uh, okay Spanish to get by. And I love the Latin culture. So I do not mind or we do not mind to retire in places like Mexico or Panama uh, because the culture, the food, the music really attracts me. And especially uh, Mayan culture, you might have seen my posted, some of my posts on, you know, uh, indigenous Maya. I'm really interested in some of this Mesoamerican um, culture as well as their history. So, you know, I'm open to, we are open to, living in a, a third country during our retirement. Well, you and I share that interest, uh, Mossad. I think, um, look, Mossad, this has been a fantastic troll through your experiences. Um, I just wanted to see if any of my co-hosts had any questions for you. But um, I just wanted to finish with one last question, which is, um, of all of your experiences, and we started with the very traumatic experiences of your childhood, what do you think has been the most formative experience for you? And I know it's very difficult to trump your childhood experiences, but what do you think has been the biggest formative experience for you? I think being living in so many different, uh, I mean, four or five countries and traveling in all these countries, we sometimes fail to recognize how similar we are as people from different races, religions, or non-religions whether you are an atheist or a Muslim or a Mormon, or if you are a white person from Scandinavia or a black person from Ghana, or a, you know, a misto from say Guatemala, uh, as after a level of uh, maybe differences, once you mix with the people, so I have a friend who is a security guard at university in Guatemala where I used to teach, and he doesn't speak a word of English, but I speak Spanish. I could, at certain level, whether he, he's a Christian guy, uh, but after a layer of difference, if you can enter to the next level in a conversation or a friendship or a personal connection, we are so similar. And I yeah. myself get really upset when I see a war or conflict or, you know, you, you might have seen some of the posts or some Facebook posts. I get angry when I see people say, oh, we, they, they yeah, are like yeah, this, yeah. we are like, so I feel like human beings, we are so similar. And unfortunately, we often forget and we try to find the differences among ourselves. That is not something I experience. I think we are so, so similar. Uh, whether you that are from an indigenous person in a small village in remote Guatemala or you are a, like a, a Muslim cleric in Bangladesh, uh, I think we're so similar. That is such a fantastic sentiment to end on, uh, Mazhar. But if I could just add, that's exactly the sentiment why we regard you as very much part of our group. Uh, you may be Bangladeshi, we regard you as very much part of our group in India. And uh, it was good to hear you say that you regard India as your second home. The reason that you're here on the podcast is because your experiences are so similar to the experiences of the Indian diaspora as well. And I thought that, and I think all of us, our hosts, we thought that your perspectives would add something wonderful to us. So thank you very much, Mazhar, 
for doing this today. And uh, at some point, we'll have to come back and talk a little bit more about your history uh, at a different time. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Sashi, for your really uh, exciting and I, I really enjoyed the conversation. And Neeraj, Viswas, and Vijay, it was great talking to you guys. And yeah, I'd love to do it. And you know, maybe if you want to do a history session, uh, I am in history, focusing on history, uh, I would love to join. Fantastic. Great to have you on, man. Thanks, Thanks very much, Master. Thanks, Thank Master. you, guys. Wonderful. Thank you. Really appreciate and honored to be with you guys.